everyone. It is Zoe here. Welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. This week, we are talking all things sleep. Now, I guess when we think about sleep, I sometimes think about that newborn phase because it is so challenging then. But as I now know, as mine are getting older, sleep challenges and the impact of those sleep challenges just seem to go hand in hand with parenting all the way up to the teenage years. So I was so excited to get this week's guest, Rosie Davidson, on. Rosie is an infant sleep consultant. She's a mama three, and she's also known as Just Chill Mama. I was so keen in this episode to talk about sleep through all ages and stages, including our sleep as the parent, because as we all know, that is a completely different ballgame in parenting. I think if we can have confidence around sleep, if we can have the right knowledge, and if we can empower ourselves to really think about what works for us and our family, it can cause so much less stress than it needs to. And that is what Rosie does in this episode absolutely brilliantly. One of the challenges with sleep is that we now have so much, you know, this is a new industry, isn't it? The sleep consultant industry. And Rosie shares how that is an amazing thing for obvious reasons. Also, it can be really challenging when we hold ourselves to these rigid ideas and rules around sleep. If us or our children then don't fit into it, we can somehow think we're failing. So what Rosie does in this episode is she really gives us back our confidence around sleep. And my word, don't we need that? Here it is. I hope you love it. Rosie, I'm really excited to chat. I've followed you for a long time. It feels to me like what you're doing and the work you're doing has just exploded in the last couple of years. Why do you think that is? Oh, it really has. I don't know. I think maybe parents are hearing more about sleep, thinking more about sleep, or just realizing that there's avenues of support out there. It's funny, when I first started my Instagram page, I don't think there were any others, if not maybe one or two sleep consultants. And now there are just countless. So maybe it's just something that more people are hearing about. Do you think that's a challenge as well? Because one of the challenges is it's not regulated industry, isn't it? It's like coaching. It's like my industry. Anyone can just call themselves something and be dishing out advice. Do you see that there's a sort of positive and a negative to the explosion of the sleep industry? Absolutely. Because first of all, you might be somebody who doesn't feel that you need a sleep consultant. And if you hadn't ever heard that they existed, you might just never think that you need to achieve something that's unachievable, number one. Number two, like you said, essentially anyone can set up as a sleep consultant. So it's problematic in that sense because there's people dishing out advice which could be harmful. So it's concerning for both of those things that people might think they need something they didn't need in the first place. Second of all, they might choose somebody who doesn't align with their parenting style or is actually giving out dangerous information because that does exist, unfortunately, in this space. Yeah, it's so true. It's always discernment, isn't it? I always talk to people about you've got to use discernment. And what's it been like having that explosion and growth of your business and what you do alongside growing your family? How have you handled the tension points? Do you know what? I absolutely love it. And I kind of see the business is my fourth child and you've always got push pull from every member of your family. So you're kind of spinning plates. And I have to say that 
as the business has grown, as my following has grown, as my activity has grown, there have been moments when some days it's hard and you do drop a plate. But I just think I've learned myself to deal with myself with kindness and just be like, you know what, you cannot be everything for everyone. So something has to drop. It's about not feeling guilty about that. That's the key. (laughs) Tell us more about that. For example, my middle child is poorly today and she has a sickness bug and her daddy's with her, but she would probably like mummy just because that's how it is. You know what? I'm having this conversation. I really want to have this conversation. So she's going to have to wait. And I'm not going to feel guilty about that. I've learned this. Like mum guilt is just crippling for so many people. And I've learned to step away from that on the whole. Like, you know, I'm not perfect, but you have to allow yourself the space to be yourself, do your job and do what you can. And that's all you can do. You can only do what you can. How have you made that step away? Because I know pretty much it's a universal truth. You know, we talk about guilt on the podcast, but I'm always so interested with how people have actually made that shift from where in the past, maybe you'd have felt really guilty or maybe even cancelled this recording in order to, to be with her. How have you been able to show up here and you haven't got that guilt gremlin on your shoulder? That's a hard question to answer. I think knowing in myself that I can only do the best that I can, but you have to look after yourself. I'm sure many people have said this on your podcast before, the analogy of the oxygen mask, right? So you have to put yours on first, otherwise you can't look after anyone else. Knowing that maintaining my boundaries, my mental health, everything I need to function is the most important thing because I am the head of this household, although my husband and I work really well as a team. When it comes to the business, I'm the head of it. When it comes to the children, no matter what happens, he's a brilliant, really hands-on partner, but they always want mum, like when they're ill. And you just have to know that, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. And there's no point feeling guilt. It's not helpful to anyone to feel guilty. Yeah, you're so right. Where do you see parents experiencing the most guilt around sleep? Oh gosh. I mean, (laughs) there's potential guilt at every turn. I think first of all, a lot of parents feel guilty at the beginning because they feel like they're not achieving something that's unachievable with newborns. What this seven to seven malarkey. There's so much pressure from the very beginning. The first question people seem to ask you, how are they sleeping? Well, they're sleeping like a baby, which is completely unpredictable for most, but they are so different. And it's like the comparison and the guilt is really connected to the comparison. I think that's one thing, but also the guilt that I remember with my second and my third, when they were newborns, feeling guilty that I couldn't be as active with my other children, with my husband, with the home, with the business, having to take that time and take stock and be like, I'm in this newborn bubble. This is all we can do right now. I can't feel guilty for not being able to go to my daughter's school play because I've just had a baby, you know? You're so right about that, about the surrendering to the sleep deprivation. Yeah. You can't do it all, all the time. You know, I mean, I've helped lots of parents with juggling bedtime routines with more than one child, which, you know, sometimes you have to, if you're on your own, you have to do that. But not feeling guilty about if you either have to potentially cut that toddler's bedtime story short, or perhaps the smaller baby, you have to leave them for a second to deal with the toddler who needs a poo. (laughs) 
it's really hard, but you can't feel guilty. And so many parents feel so guilty, especially when there's more than one child, because you're pulled in every direction. Because what we're asking ourselves to do essentially is the impossible, which is to be in more than one place at one time. And it's insane that we then feel guilty that we can't do something which is completely unrealistic and impossible. Exactly. Yeah, it's so hard. We touched on sleep deprivation there. What does sleep deprivation do to our brains? Sleep deprivation can make you more emotional. It can make you short-tempered. It can make you feel depressed. You can have potentially symptoms of postnatal depression, which are actually sleep deprivation. You might be craving unhealthy foods. You might not want to socialize. You might have brain fog. You might be someone who's really wired and can't switch off, or you might be someone who's just literally falling asleep at every turn. So in terms of our brains, we're just not functioning very well when we're super sleep deprived. But anyone who is sleep deprived knows all of this because you'll be experiencing this. You're not functioning at your best. But I think it's easy. I don't know if you hear this from clients. I think it's easy to forget that that's what it is. Like I had major sleep deprivation with my first for about a year. I just didn't sleep for more than a sort of hour ago, really. But I forgot to remind myself every hour of every day, the reason I'm tearful, the reason I'm angry, the reason I'm is because I'm sleep deprived. I forgot often to do that. And then I start to think what else is going on. And there was other stuff going on because I think there often is, isn't there, in that first year as well. But I think it's just so important to keep remembering because that's a shortcut to compassion I've got to remember that my brain is not functioning right now. And I think people think about sleep deprivation with newborns, but I think it goes all the way up, doesn't it? You know, a run of five nights with a toddler awake, you're sleep deprived again. And it doesn't take long for the brain to feel these effects. You know, it's only like a couple of hours of lost sleep and we're not working at our optimum. So it's a space where we need to, like you said, have some compassion and some kindness for ourselves, remind ourselves how hard it is and also in spite of whether you're sleep deprived or not, looking after a child is really intense. It's insane, isn't it? What we do, particularly with newborns, where we're learning something completely new. Yes. And potentially recovering. Recovering from potentially a traumatic birth with zero sleep. And then we beat ourselves up. That's the real insanity of it, is then we're beating ourselves up. Yeah. And there's no other abdominal surgery or really transformative physical experience we would go through like birth, however you birth, and then be expected to be awake around the clock. So how do you help parents? What are some of your sleep philosophies? So I think first of all, we need to talk about what's realistic because I know we've spoken about newborns and I think most people are prepared for challenges when it comes to sleep, but Sleep challenges can, like we said, they can happen any age. And I think people need to remember that sleep is fluid. It's not linear. So it's not a straight line where you're going to be like, right, I have achieved X, Y, Z by this age and sleep's always going to be fine. There are little outliers, unicorn babies, where that does happen. And they're just always good sleepers. But for most babies, there's going to be blips in the road. So having realistic expectations, but also having some practical advice and things that you can do that feel manageable for you and your family. I think that's really important. I always say, like, just have tools in your toolbox. We are all different. So it's working out which tools suit you and your baby, (laughs) because for some people, they might think, actually, 
I'm a really routine led person. I think I'd benefit from this. They might try a bit more of a routine. And by that, it could simply be trying to start your day and end your day at roughly the same time each day. Something as simple as that kind of nugget of advice can really change things for people. I remember with my first, we had to serve nights and we'd start the day at all different times because if she'd been up for a while, you know, and then we'd sleep in and then we'd get up at half nine and then I would feel like I was all over the place. But then when I started the day between like 6.30 and 7.30, I realized actually that really helps us because then you can kind of predict when she's going to nap. You know, oh, she's going to be awake for a couple of hours after she's first woken up. And then you're like, okay, then the next nap will be probably a couple of hours roughly after that. And that's how you can kind of structure a day. And that predictability, I think, can be really anchoring for a lot of people. I think it's really helpful. So looking at routine and routine should be predictable, but it should have some flex as well because things happen and we need to be able to adapt to our babies and what's going on in our day. And then I always look at kind of sleep environment. Can we optimize that somehow? You know, can we look at blackout blinds? Can we look at room temperature, clothing, where they are sleeping, how they are sleeping? And then third and finally, I will often look at how a baby settled to sleep. Is that sustainable for the family? Is there some way that we could change that? And then working out a plan for how they do that. There's something so interesting that happens in my house. My girls are actually really good sleepers. And essentially, we had quite an elaborate settling routine. And Guy, my husband and partner was like, I really feel like I want to share this with you, but they only want me because I do this whole singing. So we managed to change it. And actually what I realized was that I love it. I love stroking their backs to sleep and I love singing to them. And I have this weird thing where I feel like it's such a moment to watch them drop off to sleep. Sometimes I absolutely hate it and I'm like, there's so much I want to do. But ultimately when I take the big picture, I really enjoy it. And I had this insight and I said to Guy, I was like, the reason that we keep falling back into this or I keep falling back into doing this, even though I could probably wean them off it really easily, it's because I really enjoy it. I love what you're saying there around who are you as a person? Because sleep's just one element, isn't it, of the, of the whole parenting plethora? And how do you want to do it and what works for your family? I think that's so important. The most important thing is if it's working for you and your baby and your child, please don't feel you need to change anything. As long as it feels sustainable, you're okay, you're happy, you're coping with it then it's fine. Don't feel because your neighbor, your friend, your family does something different that what you're doing is wrong. There is no exam at the end of this. Like a lot of parents say to me, you know, I feel like I'm failing because my baby's not doing this. You're not. There's no such thing as a pass or a fail. It's only if it's working for you. But on the flip side, if you are in a situation where you feel like I just can't do this, this just isn't working. I feel like my baby's really unsettled and we're spending hours at bedtime, have a look at what you might be able to change. What are some of the things that parents feel when they speak to you that they're failing at? Is this sort of parents not being able to put that sleepy, what do they call it? Drowsy but not asleep. (laughs) Drowsy but awake. That's it. I've never seen either of my two do that. It's rare, yeah. I mean, there's certain phrases and things and I think myths that are perpetuated within my industry. One of the ones that I really get annoyed with is about these long naps in the day. So some babies are fine. They will do long naps. That works for them. Other babies will just do shorter naps. And actually, it's not a problem 
if they're getting a pretty settled night's sleep. So you might have some babies that need loads more daytime sleep than others, but you have these myths where it's like they must do a two hour lunchtime nap, right? My youngest, I've been a sleep consultant for 10 years, has never done a two hour nap. (laughs) And he's the son of a sleep consultant. He just doesn't need to, right? So he just blasts that myth out of the water. You just don't need to do it. He sleeps well at night. You know, we've got a well-balanced day, but long naps aren't necessarily something you have to do. And lots of parents say, I'm failing because they woke up after X amount of time and I couldn't get them back to sleep. And they were crying for an hour. I'm like, just let it go. Don't worry. You're not failing. That's one. The other one is we touched on it earlier, seven till seven. Again, my son has never slept seven till seven because he doesn't need that much sleep, but he will do 10 to 11 hours overnight. And honestly, I have had people come to me and say, my child is sleeping, I don't know, eight till six overnight, but I'm failing. I'm like, you're not, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, please don't think because you're reading something from a sleep consultant's page that says that, you know, that you failed, you absolutely haven't. It's an incredible thing, the generation that we're parenting in, because we do have all this access to knowledge and information that we just didn't have before. And I think it does create exactly what you're saying. We measure ourselves against these arbitrary phrases, myths that we heard. And, you know, 100, 200 years ago, it just wouldn't have been like that. It would have just been what was passed down from family to family. We wouldn't have known what other families were doing unless we knew them in our little vicinity. We wouldn't have heard of that seven to seven. I just think it's really fascinating how important it is as parents to be able to hold information and make it work for us, not use it as something to beat ourselves up with. Yeah, absolutely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. So when parents come to you, how do you help them? It sounds like you do an incredible job of giving them confidence in whatever they are doing and reassuring and validating them. How else do you help someone who might be at their wit's end? Sometimes it's useful to speak to someone or use one of our resources, whether that's our online courses or whatever it is that you found. I think it's good to take a step back and have a look at things really logically. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is empowering parents with information. You choose how you use that. And that might be that me or my team are guiding you or you're guiding yourself through that journey. But taking a step back, looking at things logically, is there a problem, number one? If there is, What's the actual problem? Are there simple steps and just tweaks we can look at initially just to maybe make things more manageable for you and your baby? Or is it something that's glaringly obvious to somebody else, but maybe not because you're so in it that you can't think straight (laughs) and you're so tired? So it's not easy, but having somebody to hold your hand can make it an easier process for some. You've mentioned some of them already, but what are some of the big 
challenges that parents will come to you with? Is it night waking, early rising, things like that? Yeah, I mean, early rising, so common for people to struggle with that. I think most children are naturally quite early risers and it can be a bit of a shock when you become a parent. (laughs) Long gone are those weekend lay-ins. But you might find that little ones are waking up at like five and then it's 4.30 and then it's 4am and that's really heading into nighttime territory. That's not like an early wake really in my book. So early waking is really common. Night waking, obviously, struggling to settle for naps is a big one. Lots of people will look at and find my resources around the four month sleep regression, which I say in that tone, because this is a time when your baby's sleep changes, but it's given this scary label. Yeah, that word regression is so negative, isn't it? I never thought about that, actually. Do you call it the sleep progression? Yes, I do. Because in paediatrics, the term regression actually is something quite alarming. And it's not that at all. It's around four months. And we say four months because it's a common time, but it can actually be, I say, anywhere between 10 and 24 weeks. There'll be a change in your baby's sleep architecture. So how they actually sleep becomes more like an adult. Some babies, you won't perceive any change whatsoever. You will sail through it. You'll be thinking, they've turned four months, nothing's changed. So please, I have parents saying to me, I'm kind of waiting on the edge of my seat for this change. It hasn't happened. That's fine. Chill out. And some, they'll find that kind of what happens is they used to sleep pretty soundly for long chunks of time. And then all of a sudden, that doesn't work anymore. They seem to be waking much more often. They're harder to settle. They're doing short naps. It's kind of like they wake up a bit from being a small baby in that fourth trimester and suddenly they're awake, they're getting FOMO, they're resisting like you used to rock them. The rocking doesn't work. So you push them around for hours in the park. This is the four month sleep progression. When you say start to sleep more like an adult, what does that mean? Their sleep cycles change the length of them and how they cycle between sleep cycles changes and that changes forever. So people say to me, like, is this temporary? Like, no, it's not. It is forever, but that doesn't mean that your sleep is broken forever. It's actually a good thing. It's a good sign that your baby is developing as they should. It's not a negative thing, but it's working on sleep. Another thing that often happens around this age, which kind of coincides with it, is your baby's sleep needs are constantly changing. So as they grow, they need less daytime sleep. And that can feel quite hard to keep up with. And a simple thing that a lot of people come to me with is they think they've got a really great routine by like, I don't know, three months where they do X amount of naps. And they're like, we're trying this. It's just not working anymore. I'm like, they need to be awake longer. You're trying to get them to nap. You're trying to force this nap. They don't actually need it. Take a day where you're like, do you know what? Let's just scrap it all. Let's go out for the day, see our friends, do what we want to do. If they need to nap, let them have the opportunity in a sling, on you, in a buggy, and just see what happens. And you might be surprised that actually one of your issues that you're perceiving as an issue is that they are not ready for sleep and you're trying to push this routine. So sometimes that can coincide with this so-called regression and you can just be pulling your hair out. Do you know what? That's why I think parenthood is so amazing and so hard because it teaches us about keeping an open mind, being so flexible to just constant changes, doesn't it? The moment we think, I've had this so many times, the moment we think that sleep or anything else is set, 
it changes again. <laughs> but I choose to see that as like an incredible skill that I just didn't have before that I've been able to develop through this of that sort of nimble, being able to make changes, staying really present and aware to what's happening, being flexible, not trying to control it all. That has served me so well, particularly in business, actually, in other areas. But it's really hard when that penny first drops, I think. Yeah. And like it's trying to control the uncontrollable. There are things we can do to work on sleep and it's important to get that message across as well. There are things you can do, practical things, but please don't get so obsessed with it that you're pulling your hair out and you're feeling like you're failing and all the things we've spoken about. The flexibility and the resilience that you do learn when you become a parent is really useful when it comes to sleep. That obsession, I experienced a bit of that around sleep because I think sleep deprivation, you become obsessed with the thing that's most on top of your mind. And so I was so sleep. I did become a bit obsessed with it. How do you help someone who you can see is like, just that's all they're thinking about? Because I imagine those are the type of people that would hire a sleep consultant. Yeah. And they are. And we do change lives every day. I would say, ideally, if you have somebody who can help you, who's right there. So this is where, when I first started out, I used to do a lot of home visits. I do less now, but the amount of parents, I'd literally walk through the door and they would collapse on me crying. Yeah. I think I would have done that if I'd got a sleep consultant. (laughs) They're just so happy to see a friendly face. And that's where trying to create your own network. So whether that's a partner a family member, a close friend, and just say initially, right, can you just maybe listen in on, on this call? Or if you're creating your own plan, can we just chat about this? Can maybe you just let me have a nap just for half an hour, even before we have this conversation? Because when you're in that much of a dark place or what I'd call a sleep crisis, you need that support around you, whether that's a sleep consultant, your health visitor, potentially your GP, if they're able, or close friends and family partner, just somebody to hold your hand to do it with them because you can second guess yourself every turn as well. Yeah, that's it. And so much of the advice out there, which you will know, of course, is conflicting and you can get yourself into a real tailspin about it. And I know with Guy, I had this experience where he was reading certain information, which was saying we need to let her cry it out. And I was reading far more holistic information, which was like, do not do that. You will, you know? And so we were also both sleep deprived and then starting to fight about the solution. It was really, really tense, hard time actually that first year with Guy and I. That's where I think my business and what I've created is a middle ground. I always say like we offer everything. So I will do the very far end of the holistic support and I'll do the far end to the other end and everything in between. For most people, I think a middle ground works really well. But having that conversation with your partner, if you have one at a calm moment, not at 3am is really helpful. Yeah, we would do some of that at 3am. He'd be like, just leave her to cry. And I'd be like, no, look at this article. (laughs) It's just like, it's so conflicting and the research in itself is really patchy we don't have that much about infant sleep purely I think the nature of it obviously funding as well but the nature of sleep is quite hard to monitor it and not many people would want to volunteer their baby for that kind of process no because adult sleep all the research we have about adult sleep comes from people volunteering to be in sleep clinics right it's not from researchers clearly in people's homes which is what you would have to do of course, it's really patchy, isn't it? What do you wish if you were going to be able to commission a study on infant sleep? What would you study? Sleep methods, I think, 
I would love to get a study on those. Some of those wouldn't be for younger babies. It wouldn't be appropriate. But sleep methods, but also linked to temperament. I talk about this quite a lot. So for some babies, and this is what I believe, but I would love to have a study to truly like watertight back it up. Some babies have a laid back temperament and they're just born that way. So I think for those, some of the harsher methods like controlled crying can be super effective really quickly. But you get some babies who have a more sensitive temperament and it just doesn't work. They'll be crying for hours and hours and it's just really unpleasant for everyone. So those babies, how well they would react to kind of some middle ground methods. And also I'd like to see some long-term research on some of the more gradual holistic methods and kind of look at it, aggregate it all together (laughs) somehow. This is like my dream study. But yeah, I honestly think temperament and choosing the methods and matching that to the family, that's a skill that my team and I, I think we have, and that's really important, matching your plan to the family and the baby. You're so right about that because actually I've got two and they're completely different in temperament. My first was just born worried, I say. She's just like that, maybe because I was worried through pregnancy with her. But I think that's why she responded so well to just being held, to sleep, to be stroked, because she just really needed that security. My little three-year-old now, to be honest, I can just put her down and you know, it's me doing all the stroking and she doesn't need it. She's like, totally fine. They are so different. I think the challenge is when Jessie was three months, I didn't know that was her temperament then. I think had I known that, knowing her now, I would have just held her and not worried about it for a year because I could see that's just still what she needs now. She needs so much physical contact and reassurance and support. But it's so hard, isn't it? Because you don't know that about them then. The worst thing would be is if you hired a sleep consultant who didn't look at the whole picture and just said, like, you just need to do controlled crying for three days. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it. I would not have done it. No. The other thing is if, say, for example, you are going to do the controlled crying route or a version of it, whether that's gentler, you need to understand their sleep needs. So a lot of these sleep consultants will say they need X number of naps and they need this gap between the last nap and bedtime. So I talk about this as well. But I find a lot of parents are trying to put them down and change how they fall asleep when they're not actually ready for bed and that you're setting yourself up to fail. This is so important. So I always say make sleep changes if you're going to make them at bedtime because you have biology on your side, you have sleep hormones, you've got sleep pressure. Adenosine is really high at bedtime in theory if they haven't napped too soon. And you've also got melatonin, which is building. So if you are going to make changes, make them at bedtime, but don't do what some of these sleep consultants say is like put them to bed really early because they're overtired. And then it's like, they're not ready for bed. That's why this is taking you. If someone says to me, bedtime took two hours, I'm like, that's not right. (laughs) It shouldn't take that long. Yeah. They're not tired. Yeah. I've had this as well with Jessie where I was putting her down at seven and over time, I just realized she didn't get tired till 8, 8.30. And the moment I pushed that back, and actually now we have really nice little special time, just her and I, three-year-olds passed out at 7.30. We do little special time and she doesn't go down till 8, 8.30. She shows no signs of that being, you know, she's not tired in the day and she falls asleep really quickly. That's her natural sleep time. And if you were fighting it, and trying to put her to bed an hour earlier, 
you would probably have either bedtime procrastination, I call it, where they're just getting up to mischief or getting upset and you're trying to comfort her. And it's like, she's upset because she's not ready. It's really interesting because my husband, in an ideal world, he would sleep like 1am till 10am. That is his dream sleep. And I think Jesse is the same. And there was a study, wasn't there, about that actually, because of the way we evolved, some people had to stay up because there always had to be someone awake guarding. Maybe you tell me about the study because you'll know it and it's fascinating. I don't know the study inside out, but we have different chronotypes. So some of us are night owls, some of us are early birds, and some people are in the middle. There's another thing about teenagers, I won't go too much into it, but teenagers, their circadian rhythm is different to adults, so they stay up much later. And the theory behind that is they would protect the camp, essentially. Uh, But yeah, there always needs to be somebody awake. So it's really, really, really interesting how different we are and how differently we're programmed. My children are all different. Myself and my husband are different. So when you're looking at a sleep plan, you need to take that into account, you know? Yes, it's bonkers, isn't it? That we know all this, right? We know that we all, and I can see it in me. I'm an early riser. I'm the opposite to Guy. And in a way, we're perfectly matched because someone's always up protecting the camp. (laughs) I'm like in bed at 9pm and I'm up at six. By the time I'm home at six, he's only been asleep like four hours, bless him. And it's so interesting how we then forget that when it comes to our children, right? And we try and impose these rigid rules on them. Are you the owl or the early riser in your family? I'm an owl, definitely. When I wrote my book, actually, I would often start at like eight o'clock and write till 11 or 12. That's my dream. I'd actually rather write from like nine till one o'clock in the morning and then go to bed and stay in bed till nine or 10 would be great. So you're just like my husband. That's exactly the same. Did you do that or did you override that? Because obviously you're not going to be able to get up at like 10 a.m. You know, I have had times where I've done that and especially at weekends and really you shouldn't do that. You should try and have like a regular wake up and go to sleep time if you can to keep your body regular. So the advice is actually every day of the week, like you shouldn't have a lay in at the weekend. When I was writing the book, some of that did go out of the window, but because I write better and if you're you're having to be creative and use your brain in that way, I find that late at night is like magic time. Like it's like my magic when I'm at my most productive mornings, I really struggle. I did a podcast with someone else the other morning and I really struggled. That's like Guy. He literally, before 11am, he's super smart. Before 11am, it's like he can't access that part of his brain. Whereas I'm exactly the opposite. Post 8pm, I am good for nothing. Like that's why Instagram is so hard for me because I'm always like, right, going to talk about something that's happened today or whatever. And I'm like, I can't find even basic words post 8pm when the kids are down. (laughs) And it's so interesting about teenagers as well, because I think it's so illuminating on on this whole theme of this conversation that I've I've taken from you is, is that flexibility? Because when they're teenagers, it changes again, as you say, and actually the advice is to let them sleep in as late as you can. And some really progressive schools are starting sick form at 10am to take account for that. It started in Sweden and there's a handful of schools doing it here in the UK where the sixth formers start later because it's like they're not doing anything wrong. They're not being lazy. It's their brains are changing in how they sleep. Exactly. Yeah. But they also have lots of other influences that are really hard to manage, like social media, gaming, tech, all this stuff that certainly my generation didn't have when we were teenagers. Uh, Phones were just coming in, but like not like smartphones. Yeah, I had that flip up. Do you remember that flip up? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
so funny. What do you wish all parents knew about sleep? Either adult sleep, teenage sleep and infant sleep. I think what we've said, what we've touched on is that it's different for everyone. There are common themes and keystones when it comes to sleep, but finding your own, what works for you is really important for adults, babies, children, teenagers, elderly, everyone. If it's working for you, it's great. Don't worry about arbitrary rules that you hear and what works for your friend, your neighbor, your cousin, whoever it is, might not work for you. Like that 5am working week or whatever it was called. I couldn't do that. That would just destroy me. So don't do things because you've heard about it and it worked for someone else. What works for you? And, you know, sleep should be flexible. Do you have people in the sleep world that you do really respect and admire, like maybe Matthew Walker or people like that? If, if people want to go and learn more about adult sleep, where do you direct people? I think his book is great. I think the Sleep Foundation are really helpful, especially for advice for children, teenagers, babies. They've kind of got everything and I respect them as a body. The Lullaby Trust as well, the sleep charity is a really great place to start for sleep safety. But in terms of like, I don't really have any sort of heroes. I did really like the Matthew Walker book. I think it's accessible because at the end of the day, you don't need to learn to be a neuroscientist to be able to improve your sleep. So it needs to be something accessible that you feel is easy to consume. And I do think Matthew did a good job of doing that, but there's loads of people out there. I think it's what we're saying, isn't it? Is find someone that that you connect with and whose ideas you connect with. But I think we've touched on so many useful things already, I think, particularly about just how different we all are. It's mind-blowing, actually, when you start to scratch under the surface of it. It really is. It really is mind-blowing. And I always ask the same question at the end which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? It would be confidence, confidence in your abilities, confidence to trust your gut, confidence in your baby that, you know, it is going to be all right, that you're doing a great job. And just to know that you know your baby better than any expert, whether that's me, whether that's somebody else, you know, so trust in yourself and be confident about your choices and your decisions. I think it's really, really hard. And I don't think I know many parents who certainly in the early days say, you know, I feel really confident about this. It's really rare, but even if you can be confident in one small part of it and just say, do you know what, you know, I'm going to trust my gut. So right. When I think about sleep with my little ones, that's the thing that I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd just trusted. Instinctually, I think I knew what they needed and how different they were, but I didn't always trust that. So I think it's such an important message. And where can someone learn more about you and your amazing team of sleep coaches and your courses and your book, of course? Yes. So we've got a few avenues for support. So check out my Instagram at just underscore chill underscore mama. And on there, you can see all my highlights. I've got loads of free information, our blog, YouTube channel, loads of Q and A's and things like that. We have our online courses, so they are designed as a self-led plan to help you improve your little one's sleep. We also have weaning, potty training and adult sleep as well. So if you are interested in adult sleep, we've got a great course there. We have one-to-one calls with my team who are amazing. We've got a clinical psychologist, a pediatric nurse and an early year specialist, as well as being sleep consultants. So they wear many hats. And my new book, which is designed to empower, support and be a guiding light for the first year of your baby's life. It's been a real passion project for me. So I really hope it's going to change lives, everyone's lives, who's got newborns, babies and heading out into toddlerhood as well. 
I'm sure it will, because that's the thing that we all need, isn't it? It's just that helpful knowledge that's not rigid and confidence and confidence. It's all about having tools and support in your toolbox. Yep. Oh, it's been so lovely to connect and chat to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of months that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 